0: Hey guys, how would you like to get all your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with some amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99, so visit FanEssentials.net and use promo code Nylon at checkout for 30% off your first month. Visit FanEssentials.net to get all the essentials you need. Also, if you leave us a review on iTunes, you'll be entered into a weekly giveaway to receive a free month from FanEssentials.net. Please note that winners outside the U.S. must pay their own shipping. Thanks, and now on to the show. Welcome to Nothing But Nylon, the Nylon Calculus Podcast. This is episode six, and today we have Sentil Nadarajan. Sentil was our guest a couple episodes ago, and he's back to uh, talk about his experience at the NBA Hackathon uh, and a few other things, but uh, primarily uh, we we mentioned it towards the end of the podcast last time that he was going to be doing that, and Team Nylon took second place. Uh so so we got plenty to talk about uh with, with Sentil and and his experience with the the hackathon along with uh Chris uh Pickard. Uh, actually Sentil, is it, do you know if his if it's pronounced Pickard or Picard? Uh you know what? That's a great that's
1: a great uh question. I know that the nickname is Captain Kirk like <laughs> Kirk Picard so I'm going to I'm going to go with Picard. Uh, okay.
0: Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, so, I, I was Chris. I was unsure of that, but uh, we, we both put our best guesses forward. So, <laughs> it, one way or another, we pronounced it right while also pronouncing it wrong. So, yeah. <laughs> so that's uh, that's good. For the the audience that maybe doesn't know what a hackathon is, could you just give people sort of the high level uh, overview of what that means?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So what happened here was. The NBA decided, look, you know what, analytics is great, and basketball analytics is awesome. We have a load of data, and so what we're going to do is we're going to throw out this application, invite people over, and then what they did is essentially in the course of a day, as a, what the hackathon entails, is over the course of a day, you're given several challenge prompts at the beginning, and you have to develop some sort of solution or uh, assessment analysis. Using that using the available data to answer essentially one of those challenge prompts. And that's the high level version of a hackathon. That's how any software hackathon works too. It's like so you sort of go in, you're, you may or may not be given a prompt at the beginning, but through the course of the hackathon whether it's a day or two, you develop this solution, you develop this uh, cool new piece of software, this new cool, this new set of analysis, analysis analyses. That has some sort of practical impact or application to the field that you're working in, and that's the that was the goal for the NBA here was to you know see what sort of cool things people can come up with when given access to a trove of their data.
0: Yeah, it's um it, it's definitely a, a cool idea for the for the NBA, and I'm sure it was it was good for the the front offices that were in attendance. Uh, I know uh, Chris ended up getting scooped up. He, he's, uh, interning now, uh, with a team. I don't, I don't know if we're allowed to say which one, so I, I will not, but, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's definitely, it was a good place for people to get recruited and, uh, to, yeah. to do some networking. It sounds like.
1: Absolutely. No, uh, before, I mean, and before we get any further, I know like I'm on the podcast right now, but first of all, let there not be any, con- any confusion. This was a total team effort between both Chris and me. And so I just even be- before we get anywhere, just want to make sure that we give him the requisite amount of credit
0: Oh, for sure, yeah. That Chris, uh, this was supposed to be uh, when I was trying to schedule it a three man pod, but <laughs> as I mentioned, Chris is now interning with a with a team, so he is not in the public domain at least until the end of the season. I'd imagine. Off to bigger and better things. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that that's um, that's why we we just have Central. S- not not to downplay you, Central. Not to say ju- <laughs> we just have Central, but uh, yeah, we 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 wanted to have both members of the team but chris had to politely decline which is totally understandable he's got to keep his uh all his trade secrets <laughs>
1: well hey chris chris got it out of the hackathon exactly what he was supposed to get out of the hackathon so that sounds like sounds like a success yes, to me
0: great success uh for for chris and uh, i know in your sort of wrap up that you and he wrote together uh you, you kind of uh teased him a little bit about about being a expert uh networker so so he definitely uh, succeeded in his uh his efforts
1: yeah and i think that's a i think that's a great place to begin with like you know thought in the hackathon is the things that you get out of it outside just the hackathon aspect itself it's such a great environment like you know filled with all these executives and staff from nba front offices that it's a shame if you don't take advantage of the networking opportunity and i think that's what Chris and I reflect on in one of the uh, reflection pieces that we did was, you know, the fact that we were we would go around, talk to all these front office people, but at the same time, we were surprised that more students there weren't taking advantage of that opportunity. I mean, even if you don't want a position in the front office or aren't necessarily gunning for that kind of thing, I think it's still just a really cool topic, you know, to be able to go talk to people like Zach Lowe, who are making themselves available, go talk to people like Mike Zarin, like, that's one of the greatest selling points for this hackathon that the NBA can offer is, you know, the people that it can put out in front of you. And so that's, uh, it's just something that's like, they're dying for you to take advantage of.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the I was just gonna say that it reminds me a little bit of the uh, the Sloan conference in the sense that you get out of it w- what you attempt to get out of it. So last year I went to Boston for the conference. I didn't actually go to the conference, but I went there knowing that everybody was going to be there. And I was like, I'm going to go, I'm going to try to try to meet up with some people and see who, I, who, see who else I meet um, in the process. And I ended up getting to, you mentioned Zach Lowe. Zach is a great guy and I got to meet him uh, when I was in Boston for Sloan, and I, I got to talk to a bunch of different um, front office people from different teams. And they're all very, they're all very approachable. Um, it, it is really intimidating if you're, you know, um, just kind of getting started, or um, even if you've been, you know, I've been writing about stuff off and on for a while, but, um, you know, I'm kind of, kind of still <laughs> not not very well known or anything. But Um, And, you know, I didn't, I didn't even really play organized basketball. I have mostly, everything I've learned has been from just watching and reading and um, I play pickup, but obviously not the same thing. And so it it can be definitely intimidating to like talk to people about basketball that you know, have access to uh, just more and better information, but, you know, they're, everybody's willing to talk um, and, you know, the, the conversations that you have are, Um, you know that people are coming from a place of more information, but I don't, I never felt like anybody was, um, uh, you know, sort of look look down their nose at you, uh, when you, when you talk for sure. So definitely trying to eliminate those feelings of, uh, nervousness or overwhelm when it comes to talking to people, I think is important because, you know, if you're shy, especially like I tend to be kind of shy, um, it's you just kind of have to overcome that to to get the most out of those kinds of events
1: yeah i mean like i think that's you know one of the biggest things networking is that now it's it's very hard for you know the majority of population to network effectively just because it's very hard for us to be to force ourselves out of our comfort zones and that's essentially what networking is but I think one of the great things about the NBA and basketball analytics community is that, you know, from my short experience in here, so integrated into it so far, like, everyone has been super willing and open, like, they're ready to help you. Everyone's super nice. It's an inclusive community. And I think that's, I think that goes a long way in making sure in promoting analytics and trying to get as many people involved in there as
0: possible. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like, everything that i've learned about sort of basketball analytics and, and even just about getting smarter about basketball has been the result of either reading stuff from people that put it out there because they wanted people to learn or directly mm-hmm. asking those same people questions um if i if something didn't make sense and almost you know almost without fail getting getting a response because people are especially if you're talking to somebody about their own work they're excited to to tell you about yep. what what they've worked on and like how they thought about it or, or those sorts of things so it, it, it's surprising how much you can get out of i that's maybe not the best way to phrase that it sounds sounds more tra- <laughs> it sounds more transactional there's a lot of value to be had yeah. there for sure i know i know yeah, exactly. It, it, you can learn a lot from people just by asking questions and paying attention, and and being willing to ask questions. I think is the biggest thing coming out of your comfort zone. Like you mentioned, getting more to the the results of the hackathon. So, you guys developed a, a, a metric called Dre, not to be confused with. So yours is D R A Y, not to be and confu- not to yeah. be confused <laughs> with uh, the daily R A P M estimate, which. Is a very simple linear weights metric that I put together, but um, could you just describe sort of for everybody what the what Dre is and your version sure. of Dre? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. So let let nobody confuse it with daily RAPM estimate. This is the D R A Y Dre, or you know, playfully coming up with it at eleven at eleven p.m. at night was just the daily or not daily, but defensive range adaptability score. As so playfully nicknamed for its inspiration, Draymond Green, um, is essentially it's just a metric to evaluate defensive versatility. When we got to the hackathon, there were three different prompts, and one of them was about you know come up with a new way of evaluating defense. And so Chris and I thought you know that's the prompt that probably you know gives us the most challenge but also we could potentially come up with something very practically useful out of it. And so we, when we got to working, we just, we tried to say, okay, let's, uh, you know, versatility was definitely something that were, immediately came up as something that we could look for, especially the way that it's so prized in the modern game. And so Dre essentially comes down to two things. And it's a measure of how well a player defends against a variety of scoring styles and now i say scoring styles pretty deliberately we didn't decide we didn't go with the traditional five positions on a basketball court instead we used a clustering algorithm to come up with five true offensive positions and that was that was among like the you know the creative things that we did so the true offensive scoring positions we found um, just keep going with the story of Dre is, you know, there's low usage perimeter players like Pablo Prigioni or Mike Dunleavy. There's versatile wings like LeBron James or Gordon Hayward. There's perimeter specialists like Kyle Corver or a Channing Frye close to the basket players, like a Deandre Jordan, a Bismack Biyombo, or skilled offensive bigs like an Anthony Davis or a Nikola Vucevic, and we did this because it's more more reflective of a player's impact on the game than just the five basic positions, and you can see that just by the fact that the perimeter specialists range from Kyle Korver, who's a wing, to Channing Frye, who's a center, right? Because defending Tyson Chandler and defending Channing Frye are two different tasks entirely, even though they're both listed at center.
0: Yeah, exactly. That that makes total sense. The, I think that that's a really the fact that it's five two like the positions, but uh, like the number of players on the floor is really interesting. And I, I think that that sort of that framework, the offensive side of the ball, the framework that you used is pro- would probably be interesting for other sorts of things like lineup analysis and things like that. So that that's an interesting innovation that you you may be able to apply in different contexts but so so you had basically you had developed a a measure of the offensive players play style on offense and then so then how did that fit into measuring defensive versatility
1: yeah and so we measured the we found first all the offensive players uh, or all players true offensive scoring styles and then to assess defensive versatility so you know, one of the things about a hackathon is that it's a it, we had what uh, maybe an eight hour window, including lunch, and so in order to be as concise but still as effective as possible, we decided to evaluate defense, quote unquote, by using uh, success on scoring plays, and so in order to do that, we found uh, you know what a defender's what an expected point value would be against each playing style, stratified by. Shooting distance, and then basically compared that to how many points the player did give up, respective to their expected point value, and then using that, the we basically compiled how they played against for all players, and then said that the total versatility was going to be the total versatility was essentially going to be a measure of how not just how effective. They were at defending each of the scoring styles, but also the volume of how many times they faced a scoring style. So, you know, just because someone was really effective against a versatile big, we wouldn't want to conflate that with defensive versatility. They may now, of course, they're a really good defender. They could be an excellent defender in their role. But to be a versatile defender, you have to be able to defend against a lot of positions. Prove that you can do it often and effectively. And so, you know, that's one of the key things that I'd, that I would emphasize is that, you know, people like a Chris Paul or an Avery Bradley while being really good defenders may not show up high on a defensive versatility list because they don't they don't impact a game across all five positions on defense the same way that a LeBron or a Draymond Green might
0: right and it seemed like you found that the guys in the that sort of 3 4 range seemed seem to be more your top guys for this right like power forwards mm-hmm. or small, small forwards that could swing up to power four that that seemed to be the just from what i remember of reading the the article
1: yeah so the top 5 the top 5 defensive versatility scores for us total versatility scores were Draymond Green, Serge Ibaka, Paul Millsap, Kevin Durant and Steven Adams, all mobile bigs like three either, you know, people, players playing down to three or four and being able to switch between spots. And then uh, Steven Adams, who's, you know, we saw in the playoffs just absolutely not just holding his own against Steph Curry, but actually shutting Curry down in some cases when switched onto him.
0: Yeah I thought I thought that the the the, the top 5 for especially really passed the, the smell test. The, I remember in, in the article you mentioned that the the bottom 5 you you were a little bit less happy with I guess because you you felt like the fact that like the lower usage or lower minutes players kind of popped up in there mm-hmm. it, it didn't necessarily feel like you were identifying maybe poor defenders so much as people that Stone just don't it, play that much.
1: Exactly. And I think that's one of the Things that could have been fairly simple fixes had we realized it quickly, quickly enough. But you know, it's the because of the way that we were um, saying that the volume of possessions that you play counts. Then people who just don't play a lot of uh, possessions or very low usage players are going to get kind of sh- sort of shafted by that approach, which is fairly simply fixed by putting a minimum possessions requirement, but. Yeah, um, yeah. Given that, <laughs> you know, we submitted, I think, our PowerPoint, our paper to the judges about exactly 30 seconds before the <laughs> timeline, before the time expired. So, I, we you know, one of definitely, I know that there's a lot of limitations and work to be done, but I think what I think this was still a, from all the feedback we got, a pretty good, a really cool start as a foundation for building something on, assessing what's become a very important aspect of defense in today's game.
0: Yeah, for sure. I th- I think you know, I mentioned that the that top five really passed passed the smell test. I th- I think if you look at the guys that you had in the top five, they all rate out pretty highly by defensive real plus minus and any sort of uh regularized adjusted plus minus model or even like your defensive box plus minus, those guys right. are all grayed out pretty well um you know Draymond being I think he was the highest rated player maybe Kawhi was higher I'm I'm not sure last year on the defensive real plus minus but all those guys are up there and so that's definitely and and just by going by reputation those guys are all up there too um and I think most of them are somewhere on all defensive teams at, at one point or another
1: Pour one out for the perpetually underrated Paul Millsap. If we needed any more ammunition to see how 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 far he still has to go in terms of classical perception, you know, he shows up number three.
0: He, he is so good. He and he, he I, I just everybody, I, I guess, is, he's going to end up being like Andre Karolenko. He's going to be one of those guys that oh, like stats that stats nerds like are like this. This guy was so great and nobody ever appreciated him. If I, I, I like, remember
1: correctly, Kirilenko put up a five by five line at one point in his career, didn't he?
0: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, he 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 was unbelievable. He was another guy that was very versatile, and all your like adjusted plus minus models really loved him, and it, the statistical plus minus models based off of those also loved him because he was such a stat stuffer. But yeah, I feel like Millsap is going to follow in that in that same sort of mold of. Being a guy that does everything pretty well that people don't necessarily appreciate because he didn't play in the right market. Yeah, but uh, one of the things that, that I thought was really important that you mentioned in in uh, the piece that you wrote and it, it, describing Dre, and then also that you had in your back and forth, it was also touched on in your back and forth with Chris post hackathon, was the the importance of context in evaluating your results, uh, and also in terms of presenting them to. Uh, in this case, the, the judges, but if you were, say, working in a front office, they'd be you know the the higher level decision makers. Um, Could you just kind of touch on that a, a, a little bit more? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so this is actually really cool because in fact, you know, uh, of course, while the entire world gets off the high of baseball world series uh, baseball World Series yesterday and what a great game that was. One of the things I read, about the profile of Theo Epstein, Cubs president of operations, you know one of the quotes that I came across was, and it's incredibly relevant to this, uh, if I can pull this up, almost everybody in baseball likes Epstein and his disarming sense of humor, his eternal pragmatism, and his appeal to both the intuitive and analytical sides of the game. He's the guy who could sit at lunch one day with the jocks, the next day with the nerds and not only look comfortable in both places but own the table and that was from jeff passan in writing the arm and so i think that again just demonstrates the importance of being able to balance both straights not just the math and analytics the numbers but also the understanding of the game and prove that you have a proving that you have a command of both goes a long way
0: yeah, that I mean, even I, I would say if you have any kind of job where you have uh, some presentation of uh, data. So I, I work in the insurance industry as my day job, and that's one of the things that that is constantly coming up uh, is telling a story with the the, the data that you have, um, and having it be a story that makes sense based on what we we know about certain things. Um, and making it compelling and being able to influence people to, to see it sort of the way that you're trying to present it. And you know, that the NBA, um, and any sort of sports league, honestly, is, and really any workplace is going to be no different. If you're, if you're presenting findings of any kind, you need to be able to, to tell the story about why those findings make sense. And to also understand the limitations of what you're showing and what possible caveats there, there may need to be, uh, before you're, you know, going in whole hog on, on the, uh, Mm -hmm. the the findings. Yeah. Um, So
1: so this is like, and in the context of what we were doing, I think understanding the complexity of a game like basketball and being able to talk basketball goes a long way in like understanding not just the limitations, but also what, you know, what the data is actually trying to tell us. And for example, when we see numbers for a certain defensive versatility scores that may or may not make sense, going back and realizing, you know, there's various team like defensive schemes, surrounding players, et cetera, that could impact that, you realize, you know, the data is actually telling you a really important story that you may not be able to pick up on if you're just looking at churning out numbers as opposed to understanding the context behind those numbers as well.
0: Yeah, I think the The example you used in in your piece about your this sort of met the defensive versatility metric you came up with it was uh, James Harden graded out really high on it and, <laughs> and initially that's like you know we talked earlier about the smell test and obviously most people have a, a pretty negative view of, of James Harden's defense he is the vine all star of of bad <laughs> rotations or non rotations or non-rotations.
1: Four went out for vine as well
0: yeah i was just gonna i was just gonna say i thought of that after i said that i was like oh yeah poor vine it's gonna it's gonna go away (laughs) um but yeah so you mentioned that as you know james Harden jumps out but you were able to identify based on because you knew sort of the ins and outs of your methodology you were able to point to the reason for why he would jump out as a uh, a good defender and why that might point to a, a, a potential weakness in, in the setup of the model, right? Yeah, and so,
1: I mean, one of the things is that because we're only looking at scoring events, it may not, you know, take into place like the ability to force a turnover or force a man or, like, be able to go under a screen and force a man to switch off of you, pass the ball away, little, like, subtler aspects of defense like that. And, you know, there's obviously things like giving effort and thing. Like if you, the ability to assign what SportVU considers as the primary defender on a play can be a complex mechanism. And so when we saw James Harden pop up as, you know, the top rated defender against perimeter specialists by scoring events, you know, we were a little taken aback. But then we considered those factors that, you know, I just mentioned, as well as, you know, using defensive scheme. It makes sense that You tried to hide Harden against players like a Pablo Prigioni or a Mike Dunleavy who may not trouble him that much. And if the question with Harden has always been effort on defense, then why wouldn't it make sense that the Rockets might put him on those low-usage players who aren't necessarily running around as much and wouldn't cause him as much trouble from that standpoint,
0: yeah, it, it makes total sense. And again, that goes back to being able to to talk basketball, right, and and knowing something about the game as opposed to just like you have to have both. You have to have the ability to to do all the the numbers crunching that that you're doing, uh, but without the sort of basketball knowledge, without watching a lot of basketball, it's kind of useless mm-hmm. and. People that watch a lot of basketball but don't have any understanding of the uh, the models. I mean, they are probably still in a little bit better situation than people that just do the numbers. But they, you know, your eyeballs can only. Human beings have certain biases that that uh, are, are going to be influenced there, and so. And you also can't watch every single play when you're watching the games or see everything that happens, and that's yeah. why, where the the numbers come in and sort of. I want to act as a as a counterweight to that, but that's uh that's sort of I th- I think the one of the big takeaways for everybody that is interested in this stuff is you know they're they're complements they're not substitutes for one another.
1: Absolutely, that's like the, that's the number one thing to understand uh, in any scenario and looking at analytics. I think when you know I started learning or it's going to be a funny set of phrase. When I started learning machine learning, um, excuse the <laughs> double use of learning. Um, one of the, you know, the ways that my, t- my professor liked to talk about it was like, it's very much like pattern finding. You know, humans are good at like looking at a bar chart or a line chart and finding the patterns. But then, you know, when we're given 20 dimensional uh, sets of 2000 data points, it's a lot harder of a task and it's the same deal. And, it's the same kind of deal in terms of pattern finding, right? And so a computer can find those kinds of patterns at a rate that we may not be able to process as efficiently or as effectively. And so you need both. You need the computer to be able to identify the patterns, but you also you need yourself there. You need a human element to know what those patterns are actually telling you, why those patterns matter, et cetera
0: yeah exactly all right well, moving kind of to move off the the hackathon thing now uh, you, you wrote a you wrote a couple of other articles this week that were that were uh, good and I, I enjoyed them so I wanted to talk to you about those as well so the first one you you wrote an article kind of assessing the state of the the center in the the nBA I guess I'll let you sort of hit the the high points of that and um, sort of tell tell everybody. What, what you kind of found in, in looking at uh, where centers are at, where they've been, and, and maybe where they're going.
1: For sure, yeah. Um, so this is actually really cool because uh, if for anyone who doesn't follow Basketball Breakdown on Twitter, do so immediately. And for those that do, you know, you'll know, you know that there was a series of videos and posts recently from b Breakdown where Coach Nick essentially talks about you know the center position is back and that's sort of what i found in using the like, clustering analysis is that you know from over time over like the past decade obviously the dominant center quote unquote as we know it ha- may not be the same but it's not so much that it's got they're gone from the game entirely it's that the style of play has evolved into a for and to be adaptable to a much different League, And that's sort of the kind of findings that I found. It's not you don't see the the lumbering low post dominators that you would in years past. But there's a there's a staggered array of big men with different skills, stock playing styles, uh, skill sets, you know, who can contribute a variety of things to a team's game plan that makes them all incredibly valuable in one way or the other. So the dominant center isn't gone from the NBA. They just, I'd say, they look different than they used to. They play differently than they used to.
0: Yeah, the, I, I thought that the the analysis you did in terms of play playing styles was really interesting. It seemed kind of similar to how you started off with the your Dre defensive versatility uh, score uh, in terms of looking at different playing styles. Was it the methodology similar there? Or?
1: Uh, it's fairly similar. I mean the the range of stats that you're the range of statistical features that you're looking at are a little different. And I actually used uh, a different clustering algorithm for the Dre, but the underlying principle is still the same feeding those statistics in and then using clustering to essentially determine what the actual, like what kinds of centers are, what the distinctions between the playing styles of centers are. And what I came away with was that there's five types of, centers in the, or at least five types of starting centers in the league today. There's, you know, you have your crashers, the guys who are like the hyper-athletic rebounders who make a living by just attacking the boards incessantly. Those are your like DeAndre Jordans, Hassan Whitesides, and you've got your defense first trench warfares. Those are your Steven Adams type players, your Rudy Gobert's who can be like, who can be defensive fulcrums like by themselves. You've got well-rounded offensive skill players. These are your Nikola Vucevic, Al Horford-type players, and you've got average player. You've got like you're just average guys, like your Plumlee brothers, uh, a Tyler or Cody Zeller. You know, these are guys you know may do a lot, may carry a lot of skills, not necessarily spectacular or even average at a lot of them, but you know they're just sort of there. Uh, not bad, not great. Uh, like Charles Barkley said, I like it, don't love it, but it's good. And then you've got your unicorns. This is your DeMarcus cousins, Anthony Davis type players, your generational hall of fame bound type talents. So that's what I found is like, you know, there's five different types of starting centers in the league today. And if you look at it, it's very specialized. They all serve other than your unicorns. Like, you know, they all serve different purposes, but it's still, I think, uh, and it's borne out by the statistics and by looking at the warp of some of the, by la- from last season for some of these young starting big men that we are, you know, it definitely in a resurgence for big men. Like this is going to be, this season features definitely the best collection of top level center talent that we've had in the league for a while.
0: Yeah, it's that was one of the, the big things that I think I noticed last year uh, in terms of league-wide trends. Was, uh, you know you had everybody talked about Karl-Anthony Towns and Kristaps Porzingis, but you also had guys like uh, Nikola Jokic from the Nuggets who came on the scene and was, you know, in fewer minutes, everybody's good as those guys. Obviously, you have to be able to do it on a, a a larger time scale and continue to prove it but he's really good and then i think you mentioned uh, in the in the article Joel Embiid looks like he could be yeah. uh, some, something really special
1: Embiid hasn't done anything to dis- dissuade that fact right now from the way he started the season
0: he is such a monster he's so big <laughs> and he moves so well like i i i'm always scared watching him because i'm afraid he's going to break his foot again but like <laughs> Oh, my God, that guy, he he's awesome.
1: Oh, for sure. Like, when we were, like, watching, like, the subtle points of the game, like, how he's just able to absolutely take guards off the dribble and blow by them, that's, like, that you don't see that from seven-footers. You don't even see that from players like Anthony Davis. Not only the agility and the athleticism to do that, but the understanding of things like, you know, when your defender's going to be placing the most weight on their off-foot how you can catch them off balance things like that you just can't teach man
0: yeah there was there was i forget who tweeted it out so like i can't give them credit unfortunately but there somebody tweeted out this uh video of him from a few nights ago he was being guarded by Paul Millsap uh and he had the he yeah. caught the, he caught the ball up by the three point line and Millsap like ran out to start to guard him and then stopped because he, you know he's like well he's not going to shoot that three And so as soon as Millsap went flat footed and stopped, like wasn't on the balls of his feet anymore and relaxed for like a half second, Embiid blew by him and went to the basket and scored and scored over him. And I was just like, oh, man, because Paul Millsap, as we mentioned, is really good on defense. (laughs) Like he's not like some poor defender and he just went by him like he was barely there.
1: Yeah, I think it was actually it was Sam Vestini, uh Hopefully, I'm pronouncing that correctly. You know, he's the one who had the tweet, and he goes, "This is against Paul Millsap, top ten defender in the NBA," and he timed the attack perfectly to when Millsap put his weight on his front foot and couldn't react as well.
0: Yeah, that's that's right. It was Sam. So good on you for being able to remember and give him credit because I had forgotten who said it. But um, yeah, that that was that play was unbelievable. And uh, I just hope he can start to gradually raise his minutes and what the one thing for Embiid right now is that he's he's a little bit of a black hole so hopefully he uh he can improve the improve that aspect but if he can do that he's going to be uh probably be another one of those unicorns
1: oh yeah I I expect at least like three or four unicorns in the league in the next like couple years Embiid Embiid is very likely going to get there if he stays on his current trajectory Carl Anthony Towns is always already close to getting to the unicorn level as it is, so for sure I think it's definitely it's a it's a good time for centers in the NBA again even if they don't quite play like their predecessors used to
0: yeah as much as it bums Shaquille O'Neal out that there, <laughs> people don't score in the post anymore I think it opens the game up and it overall is the the style of play is pretty pretty fun all right, so just the, the last, last sort of thing I wanted to talk to you about. You, you wrote an article about uh, Ray Allen, and uh, you know he retired officially retired. He hasn't played in quite a while. The, I think I think they asked Ray John Rondo about about that, and he's like, "Oh, I thought he was retired a while ago."
1: The biggest insult <laughs> you could give someone the feeling of irrelevance. Yeah,
0: he's like, "Oh, he, he did. Oh, oh, I thought he was already retired." But uh, <laughs> he, he announces a retirement officially, and that that sort of prompted you. It seemed like to to write a piece kind of appreciating uh appreciating him for being more than just a shooter which i i think it was a, a needed thing because i think because he was such a great shooter people you know it's easy to forget that so it, what did you what did you find when you when you dove into to Ray, uh, Ray Allen's career
1: yeah and uh hat tip to Tom Haverstro for this one cuz he's the one with the who put out the initial tweet about Ray Allen that sort of inspired this piece. But, you know, what you find is that Ray Allen is very much more than uh, one trick, albeit a very, very good trick player. um, That, he you know, he actually had a much more refined and subtle all-around game that tends to go unappreciated by fans, you know. So... Ray Allen, there's only 19 All-Star seasons in NBA history with at least six and a half three-point attempts and three and a half assists per 36 minutes. You know, three of them, a lot of them come from your usual culprits like Steph Curry, Damian Lillard, and James Harden. But the only player, the only other player with multiple seasons on that list is Ray Allen. So, you know, beyond just he's one of the few wings who was not only gunning from deep, but able to effectively handle and dish the ball, and not only that, you know he ranked third on that short list for offensive rebounds ahead of people like Kevin Durant and Paul George. His usage in his Supersonics days uh, topped out at twenty nine and a half percent, which, for comparison, James Harden, in a couple years back in his runner-up MVP season, was at thirty one percent. So it's not like Allen is, you know, just cherry-picking on offense, just finding his spots and just taking up. He's not, he's very much not a Kyle Corver, J.J. Redick-type player. You know, he's so much more than that right? in terms of just what he was able to do on the court, his skill set, how much he was the focal point of that offense in his Sonics-Bucks days. Like, even when you compare him to Reggie Miller... Who's who you know usually grades out as uh, Allen's top competition slash point of comparison. He uh, comes out with a little bit more of an all around game. You know, topping Reggie in terms of rebounding, assists, steals. So it just lends a lot of credence to you know how much jet we how much our perception of Ray Allen is kind of distorted from his Celtics Heat days and not. And needs to be, you know, focused more on the sort of template that he was able to lay out for today's wings, you know, from his Bucks and Supersonics days.
0: Yeah, I mean the that twenty nine percent usage rate that one really jumped out at me because I I think you know I I knew that Ray Allen was a superstar back then, but I think one of the things that happens, and we mentioned it a little bit with Paul up and Andre Karolinko, but if you don't it, You know, and this was that it was happening before the days of League Pass really being taking off. (laughs) Uh, So if these guys aren't on national TV all the time, and you're not seeing them all the time, it's really easy to not uh, appreciate how good some of these guys were. Uh, And that's again, you know, when we talk about the um, importance of data or or and the importance of the numbers to kind of complement actually watching guys, if you don't even have the opportunity to watch guys but more than two or three times a year, that being able to see what they did over an 82-game season and look at those numbers is really uh, valuable. But tw- a 29% oh, yeah. usage rate is, is so high, and I think you're spot on that the his His Celtics years and his heat years those were the years when he was making deep playoff runs and when he was on teams that were really in the national spotlight and that sort of it becomes the picture that people remember of him, and also there 's the you know recency bias those are the last two teams we saw him on yep and he was you know he was in a diminished role he was he was older and he was playing on a team with two other superstars that could take the the load off of him. And so he he gets that re- sort of reputation as being, you know, essentially a, a spot up shooter. And he was he was much more than that. It, it, the The stats you, you talked about in terms of his scoring rate, his a number of three pointers, and uh, the assist rate makes me wonder just how much more damage he might have even been able to do in in this era if he was in his prime right now, if he'd been sort of empowered in the way that Steph has been to take even more threes oh, because yeah. he was so, able to be so efficient even with a near 30% usage rate. Yeah, he he's definitely a, a, I think at this point underappreciated uh, particularly for the things that he de- that he did in terms of all-around game.
1: Yeah. I think like he had a, he had a game that aged really well, right? And so I mean part of it was getting older, but as he went to the Celtics, as he walked, moved through the heat, in those latter stages of his career, It his game evolved, and it was better suited for the stuff, for what was required of him, which was, you know, he was on a team with three other all-stars, like the the Ubuntu, Doc River Celtics, and you don't need necessarily someone who's a ball-handling maestro, maestro when you have players like Rondo around you, and what you need to do in that role when you have guys like Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett... And Rondo is, you know, they required someone who could punish teams from deep, and that's what Allen was able to do at a brutally effective level.
0: Yeah, it sort of reminds me. I mean, they're not they're not similar players in in terms of like obviously they play different positions, but it sort of reminds me of the the sacrifice he, sacrifice Allen made and the the game change that he made um, in going into a big three and, and kind of being that third guy. It reminds me a lot of like the, the Chris Bosch uh change change in role because mm-hmm. Ray Allen was you know as you kind of showed in your piece was this all around just dominant star uh could score could could dish could rebound uh could kind of do everything and then he went he goes to a team where you know maybe they don't need his playmaking as much they don't need his uh you know the volume of scoring uh, but he he f- fills into that role of, all right, I'm going to wear people out by running around screens and spread the floor for the rest of the team. And uh, in a lot of ways, that, that's kind of similar to what Bosch did. Like, they needed floor spacing. They needed somebody that could play center and still shoot and, and be mobile uh, because of the style of defense that the Heat wanted to play. And he was able to, being that sort of, like, chameleon I guess or, or that having that sort of versatility to to go from being a superstar to a super role player it's a really rare thing to find and I, th- I think it's almost more impressive sometimes than uh than we give it credit for because a lot of guys can't do that.
1: No I completely agree and it, it definitely does remind me a lot of you know how how Bosch's game evolved you know, we, we a lot of us remember Bosch as uh especially in the analytics community as a very much a deserving Hall of Fame caliber superstar because we know just how talented he is and everything that he's able to do. However, if you only followed him in his Heat days, you may not quite recognize, you know, Bosch's all around talents or his like, or, or his like brilliance and uniqueness in how he's able to adapt to that kind of role, whatever's needed of him.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's. It... I, like I said, I I find myself more and more as I as I watch guys evolve in their careers the ability, that ability to to you know shape shift in, into what your team needs as you go on is I think it's super valuable obviously because it can prolong your effectiveness and also just makes you more useful for a team because you can whatever they need, you can kind of give them. Um, and, you know, some superstars are able to do it. I think Vince Carter is actually a good example of somebody that was able to go from being a superstar level player to a really effective role player. And, you know, I think if you had asked people earlier in his career if that was going to be his trajectory, I think most people would have been like, there's no way he'll be able to, to do that. But he, he's done a great job of it. And, uh, I, I just have come to appreciate guys like that more because like you, for every guy like that, there's guys like, uh, you know, Alan Iverson who could, couldn't really become like a, a smaller role player. He kind of, his, his thing was being the guy with the ball. And once that wasn't useful, he kind of was no longer useful as a player and some of its injuries, but I think, uh, the injuries have kind of uh, exposed a little bit about like, so Derek Rose's game is a little bit like that. Like he can't, he probably needs to be a much lower usage player, but like, it's like, he doesn't, he doesn't know anything else. Um, so there, there's a lot of, there's probably a good amount of examples on either side, but I find myself appreciating those guys more, uh, uh-huh all the time I, I, th-
1: I think there's definitely a skill required to be able to have that kind of adaptability i think that's there is definitely a skill in that because you know a lot of players uber talented like you mentioned aren't able to make that transition or or adapt as effectively
0: yeah i mean i think like i think the biggest thing that that helps with those kinds of transitions is probably being able to shoot like even jason kidd for most of his career was not much of a shooter, and that's that's being being pretty generous, I think, to say he was not much of a shooter. <laughs> they they called him Ace and Kid for a reason. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but you know, he was able to to eventually get to the point of being a very good spot up three-point shooter and that made a huge difference and made him incredibly useful for the Mavericks when they when they won the championship. So I, you, it's not necessarily that the skills have to be there, but if you, but you have to be able to develop them and, and accept, accept the role too is a, the other big part of it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep.
0: Anyway, man, I wanted to thank you again for coming on. I'm glad that we got to have you on for a second go around. And if you keep, uh, keep pumping out the articles at this rate, I'm sure we'll, ha- <laughs> we'll have you on again.
1: Oh, no, thank you so much, Kevin. My pleasure.
0: All right, yeah, uh, like I said, thanks, and uh, enjoy your senior year. <laughs> it's, I'm sure it'll... Getting there. Well, you're almost to Christmas break, right? So uh, there you go. Yeah. All right, have awesome. a good night, man.